Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and Revolution in Ireland, Law and Lawyers Before, During and After the Cromwellian Interregnum. This conference took place in the House of Lords on the 27th and 28th of November 2014. It was organised by Dr. Coleman Dennehy in association with the Irish Legal History Society and generously supported by the Society, the Bank of Ireland, UCD Humanities Institute, University College London Department of History and UCD School of History and Archives. The event was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a paper from Session 6 entitled Shooting Stars and Survivors. King's Inns Revisited, 1648-1661. The paper was given by Professor Colm Kenny of Dublin City University. Ireland, as you know, was devastated, of course, by the time Oliver Cromwell returned to England in the early 1650s. Ireland was, as J.C. Beckett put it succinctly 40 years ago, uh, he wrote that 10 years of almost continuous warfare during which the contending armies had lived off the country had destroyed the framework of law and order and reduced many areas to famine conditions. Plague was rife, especially in the cities and towns, and the reappearance of the wolf as a menace to society marked the general desolation of the countryside. Great pen picture. In 1651, the citizens of Dublin complained, and I quote, Whereas by the rebellion and ten years' time of war now last past, as also by the heavy plague whereby this city is exceedingly depopulated, at least one half of the number of houses that were therein are pulled down and destroyed, and the houses that remain are very much decayed and ruined, and by reason of the want of artificers and workmen, the said houses cannot be repaired. Now, in these circumstances... It's more surprising that King's Inns survived and that it fell into disrepair, for it stood on the north bank of the River Liffey, connected to the walled city of Dublin by what was the only bridge across the Liffey for many years. And yet it became a main venue for business of the Court of Claims that was established to facilitate the prompt transfer of Irish lands to new hands, and records of the four courts were kept there. By looking at the fabric of King's Inns and at the schedule of business and at certain admissions during the interregnum, we come face to face with the limitations of our knowledge of these years. The King's Inns had been founded in 1541 by lawyers who took over the property of a dissolved Dominican friary. Now, not a single drawing or painting of King's Inns at its former location between 1541 and the 1780s appears to exist. I've never found one, and I'd be delighted to. It's not altogether surprising, given given how few images of Dublin City or of any place in Dublin there are from before the late 18th century, which is a phenomenon worthy of discussion in its own right, I think, this lack of images. But we do have John Speed's delightful map. It may not be Google Earth in its exactitude, but it is still pretty useful. Here you can see what was long the sole bridge across the Liffey. It led from below Christchurch across to what's now Church Street. On the right, as one walked off the bridge, was King's Inns. We can see the old cloisters outlined. 
We don't know what, if anything, remained of the fabric of the friar's old church. During the Reformation, it had been decreed that the priory church could be thrown down. But we do know that back in 1348, letters patent were granted to one John de Grandset to found and construct on the stone bridge of Dublin a chapel in honour of the Virgin Mary, and this was known as St Mary's Chapel. And I think it may be the building that we see by the bridge on Speed's map, that small little building between the bridge and the, uh, and the cloisters. This building survived to become a house that was later described as formerly chapel to the cloisters and belonged to King's Inns. Now, in 1728, Gabriel Stokes surveyed the inns as it then was, and a ground plan based on his survey allows us a glimpse of how the inns of court had developed, and you can see that on the next page, Gabriel Stokes' ground plan. Number 12 on the plan, which is the long building there you can see beside the cloisters to the right, was the Society's dining room, and it's believed to have formerly been the Friars' dining hall and daughter. Adjacent to it, above it, at number 10, was a new parlour completed in 1627 at great expense, the benchers said. At the revival of the society in 1657, the benchers bought a nice green carpet for this parlour and a cushion for the Chancellor's chair and a cushion for the Chancellor's mace to lie upon. I'm not quite sure if that would be the same mace that's in the house that is in the uh, Collins Barracks Museum today. I think it probably was. Number nine to the left of that was described as part of the ancient stone buildings of the inns and it served as a judge's chamber. Around the cloisters were a number of structures, two or three storeys tall. These were used variously as chambers for senior judges and as places to keep court records or to hold official business. During the 50s, the 1650s, the judges took steps to remove the treasuries of the four courts out of these buildings. The treasuries included records of the upper bench, common pleas and the exchequer. Not all of the buildings on Stokes's map or plan here, the second page, were mere remnants of the friars' establishment. Thus, number five, for example, on the left, was erected during Thomas Wentworth's time in Ireland and was used for both chambers and for the Court of Wards. That's where the Court of Wards sat. Uh, number one, up the top uh, left-hand corner, um, was a site that had been let to George Carlton in 1639 for the use of the Hanapers' office. He erected a brick building there. His lease was renewed in 1654 as the Court of Claims ramped up its business at the inns on condition, he was told, that he keep the area number two on this map, which was, quote, a square paved court lying between the demised buildings and the other buildings mentioned in this deed, clean from dust, dunghills and other annoyances. Number 15, the large building near the Liffey there, below the, uh, below the daughter, uh, appears to have consisted of two lots during the 1600s. On one of these in 1640, the Attorney General Richard Oswaldstown built a house, and during the Cromwellian period, the Society leased this house to Oswaldton's son. Later, this number 15 will be let to Sir Patrick Dunn, who kept his library there, and the College of Physicians met there until he died and they were ejected by the Society. The big space, number 27, to the right was the Old Inn's Garden, and uh, the Society harvested herbs here, which they strew on their floors. The garden was earmarked as a site for new forecourts as early as the 1630s, but of course the forecourts remained in cramped conditions up beside Christchurch, between Christchurch and Skinner's Row, uh, until the 1790s. King's Inns also owned land to the east of the old friary. Between 1634 and 1636, 
the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Robert Meredith, you can see his name there under the letter Z, secured from the inns a house in which Samuel Mayard had lived and also some adjacent land. His house passed to the Cromwellian Adjutant General and Baptist, William Allen. Admitted to the Society in 1654, Allen petitioned for a right away from this house through the inn's garden to the Court of Claims, then sitting where the Court of Wards had formerly sat. Allen was, among other things, one of the commissioners appointed to carry out the work of the Court of Claims. He said it was convenient for him to cut through the garden, and besides, he noted, the street that he otherwise had to go by was unclean. Down by the river in the 1650s, one man was leased from the benches a small premises that had been used as a shop next to steps that led down to the river. As part of the deal, he agreed to keep clean the inn's yard and to clear the inns from, quote, idle boys and beggars, which do much molest the same. At least there were no mention of prostitutes who in the uh, 1700s came to infest part of the inn's property. There were just a few chambers at the inns, and these generally were reserved for senior judges. In 1657, the government granted funds to help restore them. Although space for chambers at the inns was limited, the benchers in June 1658 entertained a petition from Major Anthony Morgan, who wished to build up for himself a ruinous building on the north side of the cloister of the inns. He was an MP, but not a lawyer. I wonder, did they see this as an investment for the future, an enhancement of their premises that no bencher or lawyer could afford to make? Or were they trying to keep in with a man who was a close associate of Henry Cromwell? We shall return to Major Morgan in a moment. A notable admission to Chambers at this stage was Henry Wooten, a preacher. And he seems, despite what Bartholomew Dewey says in his History of the King's Inns in the early 1800s, to have been the first preacher appointed. And this reflects the influence of preachers at the Inns of Court in London on the Englishmen who then dominated the bench in Dublin. For even before Parliament advised the Council in London to place godly men and able ministers in the various Inns of Court there, the benches of Ireland had desired Wooten, quote, to attend here to give thanks during the term time when the judges meet in common. So we're forming a picture of an Inns of Court that continued to be used uh, during this period. So let me turn from the fabric of the inns, uh, which unlike the London Society, by the way, of course, included judges among its members, and these long controlled its councils. Now let, me, let, me, let us look at the business. The four courts in Dublin were generally in abeyance, if not formally suspended in the early 1650s. During the 14 years between 1641 and 55, there appears to have been only one addition to the bench, while some of the judges earlier appointed died. By the close of 1651, there was no Chancellor, no Chief Justice and King's Bench. There remained just six judges. Three of these, Lowther, Dongan and Donnellan, sat in the Special High Court of Justice in 1652-54, to which was set up to try rebels and which sentenced a number to death. There's only one surviving entry in the records of King's Inns for the six years between 1648 and 1654. And this records the admission of the Attorney General William Basil and his being let into chambers over the, court, over the former court awards, chambers that previously had been occupied by William Parsons, whom we heard about yesterday uh, from Dr Cunningham. But given that the High Court of Justice was actively at work in Dublin in the early 1650s, is it really likely that nothing more happened at the inns than is recorded in its black book between 48 and 54? From 54 to 57, we find only five or six records, yet it's known that the Court of Claims was extremely active at the King's Inns from 1654. Unfortunately, that court's records were lost 
when the Public Record Office was destroyed in 1922. Throughout most of the 16th, and by the way, I think it really merits a study in its own right at this stage, uh, the Court of Claims, what it was and what it did, a discrete study. Throughout most of the 1650s, the four courts in Dublin were eclipsed by local courts and commissions, by the Court of Claims and by Cook's Munster Presidency. For then, in Ireland as in England, the government favoured an even more rudimentary system of courts than that which had previously existed. Even before Cromwell, the Irish Four Courts had been thought to need only between nine and twelve judges to function. In 1654 to 55, we find Fleetwood expressing his opinion that the chief courts might well be reduced from four to two. By 1655, the only judges of the Four Courts still alive appear to have been Gerard Lowther, Edward Bolton, James Donnell, and Thomas Dongan. When the Four Courts were revived in 1655, Bolton and Dongan were not then reappointed. Instead, from 1655, English lawyers came to dominate the small bench, these being in particular Corbett, Steele, Pepys and Lowther. Yet although we find these English judges signing minutes in the Black Book of King's Inns, that great record of the society from 1607 to 1720s, for a number of these men there is no record of their admission to the society. The other key member of the society at this time was Attorney General James Barry, who, along with Lowther and Donnellan, was a great survivor of that troubled mid-century and a future judge. From January 1657, we begin to get a fuller picture of life at the inns. By then, Henry Cromwell was in office, a man of more conservative inclinations than his predecessors. I know to a lot of Irish people, the idea that there was anything you know, further, more radical, if you like, than the Cromwells seems strange, but uh, there were indeed many. Uh, Cromwell was also one whom local Protestants found more to their liking than some of the gentlemen they'd been dealing with. A revival of the King's Inns in January 1657, New Style, sees its benchers then making a determined effort to collect fees from the judges, barristers, attorneys and officers of the forecourt and to put the society's business on a firm footing. During 1657, some 70 admissions are recorded by the society of barristers, attorneys and others there appears to have been nothing like this level of activity since the 1630s. Relatively detailed annual accounts of expenditure also begin to be kept, with treasurers being appointed each year. For two years, from January 1657 until early in 59, business appears to proceed smoothly, at least to judge from the few but steady record of meetings then, but there's still something missing. For it's only by a single incidental entry in the accounts for the summer of 1657 that we find that Henry Cromwell himself has been admitted to the society and that the Commonwealth arms have been erected in the hall. A book in which this admission was entered, as mentioned in passing deep in the society's accounts, was long ago destroyed or lost. What else did it contain that would have thrown more light on the legal system in Irish society during this period? In May 1659, we find the benchers optimistically taking stock of who their trustees were and considering what was necessary in order to settle the estate of the inns and other persons together with the surviving present trustees. But that was the last meeting recorded for almost two years, the next being after the restoration on the 22nd of February 1661. Thus, we find only one entry in the Society's minutes from 48 to 54, a handful between 54 and 57, and even after 1657, with minutes more plentiful, there are still omissions. And then the revival of the society from 15, 1657 appears to have been abruptly interrupted by the events of 59, when there was turmoil once more. 
There is no record of any meeting of the ventures from the 3rd of May 59 until the 22nd of February 61, when the minutes record accounts of being held at what by then is once more being called royally the King's Inns. It had, pre- it had been, for ten years, the Inns of Court Dublin, simply. However, this absence of minutes in the Black Book between May 59 and 1661 is also misleading, for it's a fact, as we shall see, that judges were meeting then and that business was being conducted in the society's rooms. So to the third of the three considerations, let us look at some of the people who were being admitted and what they signified. Its membership included lawyers from various factions engaged in the complex Protestant politics of the time. There has yet to be a good analysis written of its known members, some of whom pop up and don't... I've found difficulty seeing them mentioned in anything else, not that my reading would be as extensive as that of many people here, but certainly it's, it's interesting to see who they were and wonder who they were. Let me mention first the survivors a small number of lawyers who managed to steer a course through all or many of the ups and downs of the two decades from 1640 to 1660. Principal among them were James Barry and Gerard Lowther. Others included the Boltons, Father Richard and son Edward, James Donnell and Thomas Dongan, John Cook and John Temple. Now, Gerard Lowther, with two oars, he signs it always in the Black Book, certainly not Gerald, as is in the Dictionary of Irish biography, Gerard Lowther, in any event, nephew and godson of Judge Gerard Lowther, was an English barrister who had come to Ireland in his 20s and been admitted to King's Inns in 1619. He married the eldest daughter of Sir Lawrence Parsons, brother of William Parsons. Uh, He also succeeded Lawrence Parsons as Attorney General of Munster and as advisor to the powerful Earl of Cork. He later also succeeded his father-in-law as second baron of the Exchequer, on the bench. He became Chief Justice of the Common Pleas in 1634 and worked closely with Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Stafford. I haven't time to go into his remarkable life and how he survived many vicissitudes, including a trial for treason, but 20 years later, in 1656, he appears in very good favour with Henry Cromwell. He might have survived the Restoration too, had he not died in 1660. He had accumulated considerable lands in Ireland, and his losses in and after 1641, of which he complained, give an edge to his address from the bench on the occasion of the trial of Sir Philem O'Neill. Bartholomew Dewey wrote caustically of Lowther 200 years ago, quote, he acquired a large landed property by steering with unprincipled craft through the boisterous ocean of contemporary troubles, end quote. Very... Uh, Poetic, but more precisely, I think it would be fair to say he acquired and held on to his properties by proving himself useful to successive regimes. He wasn't the only one. At the other end of that short spectrum of survivors was the unfortunate Thomas Dongan, reduced to such circumstances by 1659 that the benches recorded his poverty as the reason they allowed him to remain in chambers at King's Inns and to excuse him from paying his pensions and caste commons. For his part, uh, John Cook is interesting in that his career reflects a shift from King's Inns and the Dublin forecourts to other sites of justice. While he declined to accept a position on the bench in Dublin at the revived forecourts in 1655, believing that that revival was a betrayal of planned reforms of the legal system, he played a major role in legal affairs by becoming president of Munster. Had Toby Bernard not in his volume on Cromwellian Ireland devoted some 15 pages to Cook and his work in Munster, it would be easy to underestimate his significance. 
Yet his radicalism then did not prevent him later assuming a prominent position at the four courts. The fortunes of some of the old Pale families whose sons had long practiced law in Ireland were greatly diminished during this period. Lawyers arrived from England to play leading roles in Irish business, some of whom were entirely new to the country and passed through the Irish system like shooting stars. One of the latter was William Osbolston of Hunmanby in Yorkshire, who was admitted notably on the 23rd of June 1654 during a period when very few admissions were recorded. He was son and heir to Sir Richard late Attorney General for Ireland, who had died in 1641. William returned, gave up his career in Ireland, left King's Inns and returned to England at the Restoration and was later elected Member of Parliament for Scarborough. His grandson, Richard, was to become Anglican Bishop of London. More striking than Oswaldston's admission to the Inns that same summer was William Allen's, the powerful uh, Adjutant General and fierce Baptist reformer, the admission of this fervent revolutionary was explicitly associated with his work for the Court of Claims at the Inns. He may have been no barrister, but he was no mere honorary men- member either, such as were sometimes admitted. He was doing business there. Perhaps even more striking again is the admission of William Petty at this same time. Petty had come to Ireland with Fleetwood in 1652 as a physician to the army, and in that capacity, by his own account, he greatly reduced the army's expenses on medicines by reforming the system of administration. He would have been very useful to the HSE. On the back of that achievement, he was giving a hearing when he proposed to the administration a more efficient mode of conducting the survey of Irish lands that were then being confiscated in great amounts to pay the arrears of Cromwellian soldiery. That survey was getting underway in April and May 1654. Between then and early September, in Petty's own words, and at the time we find him admitted to the inns, where he might dine with judges and leading lawyers, quote, he so undeceived several sober and judicious persons in the business that they did procure an order setting up a committee to review, quote, the charge, usefulness, and dispatch of the survey then already in hand. So not alone did he get the committee appointed, and here he was mixing with the judges and the important people. He gets this committee appointed to review the existing system of surveying lands, and even better than that, he gets himself appointed a member of the committee, which included William Allen. The committee communicated a set of counter proposals for the survey um, and these proposals have been drawn up by Petty and the government accepted and that became the famous Down Survey. He wrote of who opposed him. Sir Charles Coote and others secretly opposed him. He had to contend with people who wished to prevent him from using foot soldiers or papists to undertake measurements for the survey and with the provost of Trinity College who asked that scholars of the college not be employed on it. But Petty is accepted and Petty is admitted to King's Inn. So you can see King's Inn is very closely associated with the working of the Court of Claims and the, and the enterprise for the confiscation of land in Ireland. Admissions to King's Inns during this period deserve closer scrutiny than one has time to give them here. There's Thomas Birch, admitted in 1641, of Gray's Inns. What was he doing in Dublin? He appears to be the son of the Governor of Liverpool. There's Theophilus Eaton of Dublin, he was to survive the restoration as a sixth clerk. He appears to have been the son and heir to Theophilus Eaton, sometime governor of New Haven in New England. 
he had returned from New England to work in Ireland, and he wasn't the only one. Roger Ludlow of the Inner Temple had a long and distinguished career in Connecticut, which the Cromwellians regarded like Ireland as a white paper upon which to write a new society. He came to Ireland in 1654. Was he really not admitted to the King's Inns? There's no record of it. It's said that he was given little opportunity to use his talents in Ireland, but can this really have been so? when there was so little talent available for the government and complaints of the lack of lawyers to administer justice, his omissions in the Black Book should serve to remind us that the society's records are incomplete for this period and that, in general, there is at times a great absence of evidence which does not mean that things did not happen. Indeed, of the people appointed commissioners to run the Court of Claims in Ireland in October 54, only William Allen is recorded in the Black Book as being admitted to the society. Yet his colleagues on the Commission, the Judges Pepys and Corbett, while not recorded as admitted to King's Inns, are actually found signing council minutes of the Society in the Black Book. Now, I'm conscious of time, so um, of about five minutes, I was going to talk a little bit more about Anthony Morgan, but I think I'll leave that in Thomas Robinson, so that I move on to one other person I, I do want to, to mention, um, uh, in particular because uh, this is a piece of revisionism of my own history of King's Inns in relation to one hypothesis and I want to mention a couple of conclusions. And the person I want to mention is um, one person found at King's Inns uh, sometime between Easter, let me tell the story, sometime between Easter 1659 and Easter 1661 when there are no records of council members we find in the accounts an entry that the benchers had bought two tons of coal, which was burnt in the parlour at the hearing of Sir Robert Murray's and Mr. Broughton's business, and at several meetings of Sir Charles Coote, the Lord Louther, Sir James Barry, Sir Paul Davis, and several other gentlemen in December and January 1659, and at several other meetings of the judges. So there was a lot going on. In, King, in my book on King's Inns, I speculated that this record is, among other things, evidence that the influential Scottish royalist Sir Robert Murray may have visited Ireland during the dark period before the Restoration. And that may still be the case, but there is no other indication that he did so. And since my book appeared, I have discovered recently a more likely hypothesis. I believe now that the entry refers to a Scotsman called Robert Crichton, or Crichton, who took the name Murray in 1658. My belief is based on a file I found in the Public Record Office and on an old Scottish law report from the 1680s. In or after the year 1658, this Robert Murray began proceedings against a Richard Murray of Bruton in what became a long and bitter legal battle relating to the Irish lands of the late uh, Earl of Annandale. Annandale had been the son of a powerful Ulster undertaker. He owned a vast estate in Donegal. Oliver Cromwell himself had personally intervened on his behalf with the Irish Council in Dublin to prevent certain of his Catholic tenants being transported, as so many were, to North America and the West Indies. Annandale had no heir and had arranged in 1653 to transfer his estates to Richard Murray of Broughton, a relative and and also, by the way, seemingly Sheriff of Donegal. However, Robert Murray claimed that Richard claimed against Richard that the Earl had made a will shortly before his death passing his Irish lands, not to Richard, but to Robert, and so on. It gets very complicated. But surviving papers indicate that the parties were involved in proceedings in Dublin shortly after the Restoration, and certainly no later than 1662. Robert Murray sued in the Irish Court of Chancery, but for jurisdictional reasons his suit was transferred to the Irish Court of King's Bench. It was tried twice before Dublin juries who threw out his claim in May 64 and May 65. 
Richard Murray of Broughton then enjoyed possession of the Donegal estates for some years. But seven years later, and ostensibly when key witnesses were dead, Robert commenced proceedings again, this time in Scotland. There was a very long tussle. In Edinburgh in February 1681, the Scottish advocate and jurist John Lauder, otherwise known as Lord Fountainhole, reported on what he called the tedious improbation that did take up nine forenoons in the Lords, longer than ever I observed them bestow upon any cause whatsoever. In it there was great heat and many reflections on the parties and satiric repartee betwixt the King's advocate and Sir John Dalrymple. Documents relating to the contest in Scotland, including copies of very interesting, relevant Irish papers about the, what was happening, had it happened in Dublin, are in the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, and they are worth at least one article in their own right. I now suspect that an attempt was made to have this dispute adjudicated upon or resolved in Dublin prior to the Restoration, and that this is the more likely explanation uh, for, for the reference in King's, Re- King's Inn's records to the hearing of Sir Robert Murray and Mr. Broughton's business. And indeed you find 30 to 40 years later the bench is acting in what they call a private capacity in arbitration between Yall and Cork. So I think there may have been some history of the King's, uh, of the King's Inns facilitating that kind of thing. What does all this amount to these glimpses of life at the inns and of those who passed through its halls in the 1650s? On the micro level it reveals again the value of the black book, that oldest surviving record. Notwithstanding alterations and deletions, it's a very valuable record that has by no means been exhausted by scholars. For some time as a member of King's Inns Library, I've been pressing to have a good digital copy made of it for security and research purposes, because the present microfiche copy is very inadequate. And I'm delighted to say that that microfiche, that that digital copy has been made just this past week. But in fact, it requires publication in a very good, annotated, uh, discreet edition. I've written elsewhere about the mystery of the Black Book. I I find it extremely difficult to understand the way it's put together. I used to think it actually had started in 1607. I now suspect, while there are some records from that period in it, that the book itself may not have been put together until the Restoration period, and it has been arranged and rearranged, and is if anybody wants a challenge, take out the Black Book of the King's Inns, is all I can say, and go at it. You know, when I heard that yesterday, I thought of a story, sorry for an aside, that Professor Clark tells in his old English. It was a saying of Lord St. Albans, it was the, 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 which was the English title of Richard Burke, fourth Earl of Plan Rickard. Thomas Wentworth quoted him after there'd been a row over the uh, excusing of Catholics, I think, in relation to recusancy fines. And he said, as, my, my, as the late St. Albans used to say, when the clock has struck, there ought to be no more chiming. It was a very nice saying. and I thought, It must have been the Lords, being in the House of Lords, put that into my mind. Anyhow, finally, I want to say on a macro level, I think my paper points to a broader reality for those who wish to know what happened in Ireland during the 1650s and what life was like then for people on this island. So much was never recorded in this dreadful period, especially of the daily life, of course, of the poor or of women, but also of the Irish and the old English in general, of the defeated and even of those who played minor roles in the Cromwellian enterprise. And even when it comes to those in power, there are quite limited sources to which references are made again and again in secondary accounts. Historians such as Toby Bernard and Professor Clark have worked wonders with what is there. But I find myself sometimes left with the sense of grasping at straws or seeing in a glass 
darkly when I read about this period. For instance, in the Black Book, one is struck how that single passing reference to Henry Cromwell or Richard Murray suddenly opened a door on a vista that was otherwise entirely invisible and about which we can say nothing else because of the absence of any other information. A decade that was traumatic and that still reverberates through Irish society is substantially silent. And insofar as the sources do speak, they tell a sorry story, not just of life at the inns, but of life generally in the 1650s. Thank you very much.